Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to share with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hello. So today we're talking about the fifth prompt in the 2022 Books and Bites Reading Challenge, books published in the decade you were born. So there are several different ways you can go about finding these books. I found lists for each decade on LitHub, which is a book publishing and writing blog. How did you all find your books? I went to Stephen King's website and looked at his um, bibliography and just looked at the ones he published in the 80s because he was pretty prolific then. Okay. Stephen King was actually mine decade is the 70s, and there were a lot of Stephen Kings yeah. on that list, too. Yeah. I also use, like, Goodreads, and I I think I even saw the Lit Hub one, but... Mm-hmm. What about you, Adam? Oh, I found mine through lots of frustration and agony <laughs> until I finally gave up, like, looking at lists that were just generally, you know, 90s fiction. What were some good stuff that came out? Because everything I looked at, I couldn't get my hands on, my grubby little mitts. So what I ended up doing was just looking at the Bram Stoker Awards and seeing what was 1990s from that. Okay. That's always yeah. a good list to look at. I use that <laughs> one quite often. <laughs> Felt like a good time for some horror. <laughs> My recommendation comes straight out of the 80s, 1983 to be exact. For this month, I decided to reread Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, a book that's an all time favorite of mine and one I haven't read in like 15 years. This book is famous for scaring Stephen King so bad that he hid the manuscript in a drawer and only published it because he owed his publisher a new book. So this book opens with a Creed family moving to Ludlow, Maine. Lewis Creed accepted a job as a campus physician at the local university and moved his wife Rachel, two kids, Gage and Ellie, and her cat, Winston Churchill, church for short, from Chicago. As they settle in, they befriend their neighbors, the Crandalls. Judd becomes a surrogate father Lewis always thought he should have had. One sunny afternoon, Judd takes them on a hike in the expansive woods that butt up to their house to show little Ellie the pet cemetery the kids in Ludlow have been keeping up since the turn of the 20th century. The road in front of their house uses up a lot of animals, according to Judd, so the local kids have become, quote-unquote, nodding acquaintances with death early on. Rachel worries about how this is going to affect Ellie, stemming from her own childhood experience of watching her sister Zelda succumb to spinal meningitis. That Monday, Lewis's first day on the job, a student named Victor Pascal is brought into the doctor's office with a fatal head wound after being hit by a car. As Victor is dying on the floor, he speaks Lewis's name and tells him the pet cemetery is not the quote-unquote real cemetery. Lewis has what he thinks is a waking nightmare that night, where he's visited by Victor, who leads him to the pet cemetery and shows him the deadfall that borders it on one side. Victor warns him to never cross it, no matter how bad he may want to. When Rachel goes back to Chicago with the kids one weekend, Lewis discovers Church dead on the side of the road, run over by one of the speeding tankers. Judd decides to repay Lewis for helping Norma after her heart attack by taking him beyond the deadfall to the real cemetery, an ancient burial ground that was once used by the Micmac tribe, ground that has since soured, ground that brings things back to life. 
Judd instructs him on how to bury him since he once buried his own dog there. And sure enough, the next afternoon, Church returns home. But he's not the same cat he used to be, now wreaking a death and super violent. He's a very grumpy cat. Lewis starts to have serious doubts about burying Church where he did. And a few months later, tragedy strikes the Creed family again. Wracked with despair and grief, Lewis decides whether to do the unthinkable. His decision leads to one of the bleakest and pitch black innings I have ever read in a book. There's no dancing around it. This book is dark, very dark. The themes here are all heavy and tough to ponder. Death, grief, and one's own mortality. I can personally tell you, after reading it now, it hits a lot harder when you're older. It is a challenging read, no doubt. This is a dark book that will stay with you for a while. While you contemplate the ending, a whiskey sour makes the perfect companion. The recipe from boneappetite.com calls for two ounces of bourbon, three quarters ounce of lemon juice, three quarters ounce of simple syrup, and a half of an orange wheel for serving. If you want to take it to another level, you can add an egg white to tame the tartness and give it a creamy mouthfeel. I opted to pass on the egg whites. It's definitely a good choice as you really get into the warmer weather. Yeah, and speaking of warmer weather, that sounds like a wonderful beach read for for families who are going on vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to kind of like you know go dark and light, and yeah, if you really want to appreciate the time that you're spending with your family by juxta- juxtaposition, yes, there you go. that's the word mm-hmm. I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Also, you know, if you didn't want to use egg whites, you could, as I learned from a previous Books and Bites, you could use aquafaba or chickpea juice (laughs) to make your drink. Mm -hmm. Chickpea juice. (laughs) Kind of cuts down the gross factor a little bit, I imagine. (laughs) I've put egg whites in an absinthe cocktail before and it made it all shimmery and cool but it was definitely always in the back of my mind that i'm drinking raw egg right yeah now. not everybody's um, comfortable yeah. with that mm-hmm. yeah so so you said it's uh, a scarier read now that you're older is it because it's got fear of death as like yes uh, there's especially with a family now and you know you know, even thinking about the death of your child or, you know, your own mortality now that, you know, I'm in my 30s. It's, it's, it hits a heart lot harder now. So how old were you when you first read it? So I was, let's see, probably, was probably 2006. So I was 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't really yeah, ponder your mortality at 22. No, you're like, oh, I got, I got all kinds of time. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and now you're like, oh. <laughs> I'm going to venture out and guess that the reason maybe that Pet Cemetery doesn't seem to hit millennials and maybe Gen Z quite as hard is because we joke all the time about being ready to die anyways. <laughs> the world's horrible. We're ready to go. Bring it on. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well. Uh, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. segue. So. Now this. Well, I, I am kind of 
since I'm going next, I, I think I am sort of the sandwich between <laughs> the horror. There was a lot, like Stephen King was um, also publishing in the 70s, Helter Skelter, which is a book I remember my mom reading, the book about the Manson murders. Yeah. That was also published in the 70s. So there was a lot of scary stuff published then. However, <laughs> I went the complete opposite way and i guess i'll just go ahead and jump in my book is all creatures great and small by james (laughs) (laughs) so i was a little surprised to see the memoir all creatures great and small on lists of books published in the 1970s because it opens in 1937 i mean i'm old but i'm not that old (laughs) But All Creatures is told from the point of view of an older man looking back on his younger days as a veterinarian in the Yorkshire Dales. So it makes sense that it was published much later than the book actually took place. Even in the 1970s, it must have had a halo of nostalgia around it. And speaking of nostalgia, rereading the book confirmed for me that the original PBS TV series of All Creatures Great and Small, which aired from 1978 to 1990, was superior to the current remake in all but lighting and set design. Well, and maybe costume design, unless you prefer the 1980s version of 1930s hair and clothes. I'm looking at you and your fluffy 80s perm, Carol Drinkwater. But seriously, it definitely captured the characters and humor of the book much better than the current PBS series. The current series is basically called a midwife, but with animals. (laughs) But I digress. For those of you who are not familiar with either of the two TV series or with the book, here's a quick summary. James Harriet writes about his early years working for Siegfried Farnen in a veterinary practice that serves mostly farmers with small holdings. Harriet lives with the eccentric Siegfried and Siegfried's younger brother, Tristan. That is, when Tristan's not away at vet school. In short chapters that blur the line between essay and memoir, Harriet describes the life of a rural vet, where he is on call at all hours, often driving in the dark on narrow, hilly roads in a car with no brakes. Harriet greets the difficulties with humor and appreciation. Though he's from the city of Glasgow, he quickly falls in love with the beautiful countryside, the animals, and the farmers who must work so hard to survive. He also falls in love with Helen, a farmer's daughter. The stories he tells about their first dates are some of the funniest in the book, not counting the stories about everyone's favorite pampered dog, Tricky Woo. The book is fairly long. The mass market paperback I read was 437 pages with tiny, tiny print. There is no overarching plot to propel you through, no overly obvious character motivations like in the new TV series. Instead, Siegfried's rants are maddening and hilarious. Tristan is sweet and lovable and a partying college student who can't seem to pass his exams. There's also no sugarcoating of the difficulties and inadequacies of either veterinary practice or farming. 
Reading the book is like sitting in a pub, listening to a charming old man telling you stories. You don't always know where he's going with them, but you're having so much fun, you don't really care. So grab a pint of bitter and settle in. So I asked my husband for some possible bitter suggestions to pair with all creatures. And here's what he had to say, and I quote... It's surprisingly difficult to find proper English beer, even with the massive growth of microbrewing on this side of the pond. But here are some possible picks. Fuller's ESB Extra Special Bitter is available at many package stores. Three Floyd's Lord Admiral Nelson is fantastic, but fairly strong and not for the faint of heart or palate. A personal favorite, and I would agree with this one, is Green Man ESB from Asheville and Robinson's Trooper. Branded by England's classic metal band, Iron Maiden, is a solid classic. I agree with him. Those are all great choices. (laughs) All right. So our our Books and Bites beer expert weighs in to you. I'm not going to lie. I've been completely clueless the entire time because I don't know the book or the TV shows and I don't drink that kind of beer. I'm just, I'm just here. <laughs> I think I need a laugh track because no. I was making some jokes and you yeah. were pretty silent. I know. <laughs> well, I don't get them. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for, for at least giving me a chuckle yeah. here and there. It's like if I were to make jokes about, like, Adventure Time or something. You could throw some crickets in there. (laughs) All right. Well, that's what I got. (laughs) Was it a a tough read, an easy read to get? Since there was no overarching plot? No, I love that kind of book. Okay. (laughs) I know it's not either of your things, but especially because I was, like, reading them. I mean, I do most of my reading at night, and so it was perfect because, (laughs) you know, the chapters are only a few pages. I would fall asleep before the end of a chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, so if you're looking for a good bedtime book that is not Pet (laughs) Cemetery. Oh, I see. All Creatures Great and Small is an excellent choice. Now, that said, it did take me a while to get through it because, you know, I would fall asleep every <laughs> every few pages. But but I did. I persevered. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like a whole series of them. I've never read past the first one. I think mm. I've read that one a couple times. But there is, if you can't get enough of All Creatures Great and Small, you can keep going. Let me tell you, that <laughs> the the, show, the new show, the new adaptation is very popular. And people keep coming in and asking for not just that, but the books now too. So Yes. Well, I, I hope that, I mean... The new series really does not do the books justice. So I hope that they become fan. If they've never read the books before, I hope they realize how superior it is <laughs> to the new series. <laughs> I'm going to steal I, that. Call the midwife with animals. <laughs> I did enjoy Call the Midwife. I've watched some episodes of it. That said, I think that book would make me unreasonably angry. <laughs> <laughs> like it sounds nice, but like I can't stand 
investing time into something and not knowing where it's going, like knowing we're going down a clear path to something. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. Let's throw it against a wall. <laughs> where are we going with this? Why? <laughs> yeah, I think we all know that about you by now. Yeah, Adam. <laughs> yeah probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I would like both our listeners and this is the both of you to appreciate that I committed to a big, full-length adult audiobook this month. <laughs> <laughs> However, I deeply wish I hadn't done this in a challenge where I needed a title from the 1990s. I already talked about the struggles I had earlier in the episode, so I'm not going to go over it again. Suffice it to say, everything I wanted to read was checked out or unavailable on audio. Though I nearly committed to yet another helping of Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic, a favorite from my teen years, I ultimately settled on the dusty Arizona town of Randall in Bentley Little's Bram Stoker award-winning first novel, The Revelation, published in 1990. There's a quote from the 2004 movie A Princess Story (laughs) that comes to mind for this book. Hilary Duff's 2000 high school Cinderella figure pleads with her stepmother, played by Jennifer Coolidge in her usual hilarious typecast, to let her go to a school dance rather than pulling a diner night shift. The famous line of Jennifer's reply is, Now that you're older, there's something I've always wanted to tell you, and I think you're ready to hear it. You're not very pretty, and you're not very bright. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad we had that talk. I picked that quote because it's funny. It's iconic for millennials, and (laughs) I acknowledge there's probably a lot of positives in the revelation, but I hate it anyway. I can see how the story might have been novel in uh, 1990, but it just feels kind of like an end-capped 80s horror in retrospect. We're mainly following a few characters, all standard 80s white dudes with a few and far between likable qualities. As increasingly strange events point towards full-blown good versus evil revelation-style apocalyptic conflict. I believe our first foreboding scene introduces an intimidating preacher, Brother Elias, gaining reputation for accurate prophecy of seemingly impossible occurrences. His importance is reinforced by some Native American stereotype characters, one of which is a shaman who fears the preacher because he seems more powerful and also prophesies in an unknown language sometimes. Setting aside the fact that Native Americans uh, really didn't, their tribes didn't have any individuals or groups that they labeled as shamans, the characters really never made an appearance in the book again. They were just there to show that Brother Elias was more powerful than their natural power, and it was stupid. Moving on. (laughs) We've also got kind of a bumbling sheriff, Jim Weldon, who's unfortunately about the only form of law enforcement in town. He has some prophetic dreams, but they mostly just help him find bodies after deaths have already happened. Possibly his biggest source of consternation is the the satanic panic-vibed desecration of local churches with goat's blood, followed by his dreams of ritual sacrifice and fire along with a vision of a local preacher going with a horned figure, his new god, into the flames. After an honorable mention to a new minister named Father Andrews, who hasn't quite had an important role to the point I've reached, 
I haven't completely finished the book. Our last member to round out the anti-apocalypse team is Gordon Lewis, a blue-collar worker with authorship aspirations and a wife, Marina, going through unexpected pregnancy. And I have to say that Gordon really feels like the author is inserting himself into the story. That said, Gordon is absolutely childish, with his wife having to coddle him through literally every twist and turn while also dealing with the stress herself. He goes from anger that she's pregnant despite birth control, anger that she confirmed the pregnancy with a doctor before bringing it up to him for good reasons based on his reaction, to anger that she wasn't sure if she wanted to keep the child, even though he knew she didn't want a child in the first place, to anger that she decided to keep the kid, to openly mocking anger about each development that followed, with you know, little short bursts of over short bursts of overcompensating care. Probably shocking at the time, Marina's pregnancy is thrown into unsurety due to all the other women living near them losing their children after premature births. Throw in a case of an elderly woman in a nursing home becoming spontaneously pregnant, quickly birthing, and the malformed dead baby seemingly walking away on its own. Instances of snickering little gremlins-esque monsters wreaking havoc around town, and a big reveal from Brother Elias, and we get a very blatant grab at moral shock centered around the damnation of aborted and miscarried fetuses. That's a lot of information. So look, the revelation has fun points, but I could go on way too long about how this story overcompensates for mediocrity with gore, 80s horror tropes, religious guilt, and toxic masculinity. If you're looking for disturbing apocalyptic horror with a religious flavor, I highly recommend either Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chowski or The Library at Mount Char by Scott Hawkins. Granted, don't let my negativity dissuade you if the revelation sounds like a good time. Clearly, it was well enough received to get the Bram Stoker Award in 1990, so maybe I'm just an outlier, or it was a book of its time that doesn't really hold up after 30 years. Regardless, Bentley Little's The Revelation is available as a downloadable audiobook on Hoopla Digital with a JCPL library card. As far as our tasty bite, turn trash into a tasty treat with coffee ground <laughs> cashew butter. This spread can be adjusted from smooth to textured, nutty to chocolatey, and so much more with just coffee grounds. Fresh or spent. Cashews, sea salt, cacao nibs, oil, and any other flavors you'd like to add, find this recipe in Lindsay Jean Hard's Cooking with Scraps at JCPL. <laughs> Available in hard copy. So that was published in 1990? Cause it I really, believe so. It really sounds like it sounds like 80s, yes, you know? Very, so. It does. So it's like he wrote it in the 80s and then it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, little let's double check it really quick and make sure i got this right yeah 1990 yeah according to fantastic it's fiction anyway. kind of sounds like one of those crossover mm-hmm. decade books which is i mean you know our calendar is kind of arbitrary so yeah. it makes sense mm-hmm. that, that that would happen what is time anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah so did i convince any either of you to read this book no no I'll probably add it to Maybe. my list. Yeah, to your list. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did, I mean, did you even finish it? No. <laughs> no. I got about seventy-five percent of the way. Yeah, 
No, I haven't finished it. I might still, you know, it's still on my account, so I could if I wanted to <laughs> just do something crazy, you know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Have you read other books by that author? I have never read Bentley Little. I've heard a lot of good things about him. Mm-hmm. And he's a pretty prolific writer that this never really made it up to like Koontz and King status, but he's still publishing today. I got a lot of my, I got several titles on my list or have downloaded that I'm meaning to get, but mm-hmm. Adam mm-hmm. hasn't dissuaded me from it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, a, a review or two I saw said that, you know, it was a fun book, but it's definitely like, it's his first one. So, Maybe maybe he's got ones after this one that are improved a yeah. whole lot and are brushed up. And, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the first one can be a little rough. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, there you have the the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and kind of a wildly divergent selection. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a spectrum of choice, and it's all something. The hits from the <laughs> 70s, 80s, and 90s. <laughs> WJCPO. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the Books and Bites reading challenge, visit our website at justpublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme music is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. Find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.